0: When I had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Shaul, Shaul, Saul, Saul, which was his Hebrew name, Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen in your blindness, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power or dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. But I want to focus on how the dominion of Satan is broken when God's perspective turns on and changes our worldview. You could rephrase it like this Slavish submission to the dominion of Satan is no more evident than in the blinded self deception of our own carnal certainty. I don't think his lordship is any more overt than in demanding that we question our view and seek after an insight, a light, a truth outside of ourselves. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images, Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Powerful scripture. But he connects blindness to prisons, he connects darkness to dungeons. Amen. And I believe that there are people, perhaps still in this room, who, with their mind, they serve the law of God. With their mouth, they confess, I want to do God's will. But they don't understand that the real crux of submission is doubting their own perspective. The real crux of trust is yielding to and opening your mind to God's perspective. Was it an accident that a man so trained in the school of Gamaliel, in the tradition of the Pharisees, called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he said that, in according, to, according to the law, he was blameless. Is it a coincidence that his conversion started with blindness. This guy who is marching forth under the unction and zeal of his own self-righteousness, he starts his relationship with God with blindness. If we don't start this quest for repentance or this pursuit of discipleship and transformation. If we don't start at Paul's starting point we are not going to get what we're after. One of the greatest entrenchments of human will is our own perspective. Our own viewpoint. And the inability to fundamentally doubt that. Somebody says "Well, why should we doubt our Our will. Why should we doubt our viewpoint? I just know what is because I've experienced it. That's the nature of empiricism. I can't believe it unless I can encounter it. You think of scriptures, and I've ministered on this for years, but I remember reading the first time when John was approached by the Pharisees. And they said to him, are you the coming one? And he said, no, I am not. And then John was asked by the Pharisees, are you Elijah who is to come? And he said, no, I am not. And we know from the preponderance of New Testament scripture that John was Elijah who was to come. And yet he makes this statement, no, I am not. And then we read Jesus who says, for those who are willing, he is Elijah who was to come. And we go, oh, okay. So what they were seeking, they could not find. And for them, it was not a reality because they weren't willing. Wow, that's, that's disturbing. <laughs> That something could be before me as a reality from God, but my will or my perspective, my outlook, the certainty of my own viewpoint could prevent it from being a reality, even though it was there for somebody else. I remember similarly perplexing over Jesus' response to those who came and demanded a sign. And he responded and told them, no sign will be given you. Except one, Jonah, who was in the heart of the earth for three days. And you're like, you can't even flip the page without finding two miracles. What do you mean no sign will be given you? Well, it's already preposterous that they would even come and ask for a sign. They're persecuting him for the signs. They're they're saying he broke the Sabbath for the signs. Every time he performs a miracle, they're sitting on the edges waiting to say, "You're, you're violating protocol. And yet these same people come and ask for a sign. And you want to be a little incredulous. But we do the same thing. We ask for grace while we're pushing aside grace in order to make ourselves heard. We ask for light while our eyes are closed like this. No, that's not true. We ask for things that our worldview will not allow us to perceive or inherit. And we blame God when we feel bereft, abandoned, isolated, failing to see that it's only by our own will. I remember hearing that brother Derek when he was when he was in uh, Papua New Guinea brother Derek and sister Sally I remember hearing that something along the lines of the fact that the New Guinea natives the Papua New Guinea natives were incredulous at the concept of germs why because their the reach of their empiricism could not relate to these realities. They said, you can't see a germ, you can't smell a germ, you can't touch a germ, you can't hear a germ, except when they say ha but why, why should I believe that there are germs? People do the same thing about the reality of the spirit. Right? I can't see a demon, smell a demon, sometimes I can. Hear a demon, well, I take that back also. But seriously, there are realms of reality outside our immediate carnal perspective. And those who say, well, I can see a germ, well, you're using something to enhance your natural human capacity, but you can't see it with your naked eye. How many of you saw coronavirus come dancing in here? Well, we didn't see it. And yet we had to have belief that we needed to avoid certain encounters in order to, you know, avoid certain encounters. (laughs) It takes faith. And yet in the realm of science, we're just wolf naturally. They say that there's this thing shaped like a crown floating around. We believe it. Put something over your face in order to keep yourself from breathing it. You've never seen that. You've seen that picture with those red things on it. But you've never seen it. But you believe it. Because you see the consequence of it in other people's lives. And people have given an explanation to what's happening. It seems to correspond to reality. You know it's true. And yet when the Lord says that your will and your pride and your vanity is exactly the same way. And you see its consequence in other people's lives. Would you be willing to wrap something around your face in order to keep yourself from breathing it in? Probably not. I dare say more people die of self-will than of coronavirus. When we were in Scotland, we heard about a scientist there who pioneered the science of uh, antiseptic science. And like Louis Pasteur and um, Ignaz Simelhues, Agnes West, I think is how you say it. And Simulhues, Simulhues, however you say his name, he was a doctor who noticed that babies born to midwives had a mortality rate a fraction of the babies that were born in hospitals. And he was perplexed by that in, in Vienna's general hospital. And so he came to the breakthrough discovery that you should, you should sterilize your instruments between uses. And now we laugh at it. But it wasn't at all uncommon for a, a doctor to have bloody hands, dab them on a dry towel, and walk into the next surgery. That was the norm. Because the activity in question was outside of the human Mind or analysis it's outside of human purview and yet in this scripture we read he says that when God opens our eyes he delivers us from the dominion of Satan and puts us in the dominion of God Satan is at work He's at work through ideas. He's at work through desires. He's at work through ambitions, through pride. He's constantly at work. And the power of the gospel can be described as rescuing people from the darkness of their own certainty and bringing them into the light of God's reality. God always saw that the road we were walking on was going to lead destruction we can either believe it with his word or we can wait to discover it for ourselves and I think of how many people say stand and say I want to trust God I want to trust God well you don't trust until trust is needed trust is not something that you just opt for as an alternative to certainty. If you pour yourself a glass of water and you know where the water came from, you take that glass of water with a, with a degree of confidence. There's no, no real trust involved. It's like, sure, it's fine. Somebody comes and brings you something and you can't even see the color of the liquid and they're like, you're like, what is this? If they got a smirk on their face, you're going to like test it Smell it, open the lid, yeah, you take a drink first, right? Am I right? You don't trust because you want to, you trust because you have to. And if we're not living in realities, if we don't believe that as human beings we inhabit realities that we don't have oversight over, that we don't understand, then we don't have any need for trust, We only trust in those dimensions where we acknowledge, I don't know what's in the cup or I don't know the result that this step of obedience is going to have. We trust in areas that define the limits, defined by the limits of our own oversight. That's where trust begins. So, If we think that we can bring all of life under our carnal mind's purview, then we don't need trust. Certainty replaces the need for trust. You don't need trust when you can ensure it for yourself. Of course, then you may not know am I being self deceived? But nobody ever doubts themselves because the one thing we definitely trust implicitly, always and through everything, is ourself. Does the Bible teach us that we can be self-deceived? Does does somebody who is self-deceived know that they're deceived? How do you know you're not deceived? I mean, the Bible says things like, see to it that no one takes you captive. And over and over it says, let no one deceive you. And then it tells us that the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. And that nobody but God can know it. Right? So how do we know? How could God show us if we're deceived? How could he, how could he affirm to our hearts that we're not deceived? How, how do we avoid this? He says in Ephesians 4 that people are being taken captive by the trickery of men. Cunning, craftiness, and deceitful scheming. Right? But how do we know that we're not deceived? Brother Safir said, we have the mind of Christ. Brother Zach evoked the scripture from John where John says, you have an anointing. Right? So there are some things, there are some ways, but ultimately the simplest answer is we don't know that we're not deceived except that we have a relationship that we trust more than ourselves. Just like a child who meddles in things that they don't understand but takes their parents' word for it, they know that they're doing the right thing because mom said it's the right thing. And really, human knowledge never gets any more advanced than that. Mom either becomes the state or science or God. (laughs) But we just trust Because we know the higher power that's told us it's okay. This is my will. So the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit assures our hearts. That Jesus, the presence of Jesus, assures our hearts. (laughs) That we have this consolation. We have this hope made more sure. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are sons of God, right? But this is a parental relationship. This is not a relationship where I finally figure it out because all the facts were laid before me and I analyzed them six ways to Sunday and made a decision that was fully informed. I remember the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, who was in his position of authority during the most trying crises that America has faced as a nation um, he said he said "The, the principle of war is that you don't know what you don't know and he kept saying that all kinds of different ways but he was basically saying you're not omniscient and you do not know what it is that you do not know he said people tend to think that they people tend to acknowledge that there's things that they don't know but they tend to categorize what they don't know but they they might be putting it in the wrong category because you don't know what you don't know and it is going to spring out of nowhere and you're going to have planned for what you know And you're going to have planned for possibilities that you think might could happen that you don't know. But but even still, you're operating from a reference point of knowledge. And what's going to really undo you is when something happens that's never happened before. And what he was describing is man's not omniscient. Even Google doesn't make man omniscient. Even history and collective experience doesn't make man omniscient. And what he was not saying and what he should have been saying is the only way to be sure in this life is to have a parental relationship with the one who sees the end from the beginning, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The one who can say before you were formed, I knew you. And so trust, trust is the essence of repentance. Faith, trust, surrendered trust is the essence of repentance, but it only comes from an awareness of blindness and limitation. And the essence of trust is saying, I don't know and I can't rely on what I think I know. I have to have This numinous relationship with the God who cares to teach me what I should know. When Peter was in Antioch and um, he began to adopt the customs in the presence of James and Barnabas and the Gentiles, he began to return to the customs of his uh, faith the customs that God had really set them free from. And Paul comes on the scene. Paul rebukes him for being a hypocrite, right? And if you read it, it's not, you know, if you read the account there in Galatians, it's not an inconsequential problem that Peter is engaged in. Paul feels like he could be robbing himself from the life and salvation of God, of Christ, Paul is not indifferent toward this, right? And what's interesting is that there are others who are, there's an entire congregation who's present, who apparently hasn't said anything. And there's James, who is present, and he apparently hasn't said anything. And there's Barnabas, who Paul says is being hurt by it, being taken in by it, even though he's an apostle. You with me so far? Now, I would like to think that nobody in this age has gifts that surpass James or Barnabas. I I feel like that's an assertion I can tentatively make. Um, (laughs) If we could just live up to half of what those people had, we'd be doing really good. (laughs) But for whatever reason... Peter is lapsing into a hypocrisy that is going to nullify the life of Christ. And Paul does not invite him to a debate. He doesn't send him a book. He doesn't ask him, hey, I wrote this essay to the Galatians. You ought to give it a read and tell me what you think. Now, we know that in another capacity, Paul has already gone to these same two men, James and Peter, and asked them. If he was running in vain. Paul has already submitted to them. And received confirmation from the Lord through these men. And now he's visiting these men some decade later or so. And um, he doesn't give him his, his Romans essay or his Galatians essay. He says that he opposed him to his face in front of the entire Galatian church. And he rebuked him with the authority of the truth and the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter could not have known that he was deceived until somebody shone the light, until the Lord used somebody to turn the light on. If Peter had been full of pride, he could have stood up and said, Listen, you whippersnapper. He's called a young man named Saul. So he's probably younger than the apostles. Listen, you whippersnapper. I'm the one who confirmed to you that you had the truth. Right? You're out of line. And uh, perhaps if he had been like a modern-day Christian, he would have invented a whole theology just to save his image and pride. From going, oh, brother, Lord. But Peter wasn't like that. He didn't know he was deceived, and we don't know when we're deceived. But God is going to put us in a context where he is going to speak to us. He might use people. He might just do it in some supernatural way. But he is going to put us in a context where we're going to get to decide between our mind and relational trust. And when we make that decision, our claim of faith in Jesus is going to be revealed. Let me read a scripture. Before communion, we're supposed to examine ourselves, are we not? And what is the examination? To see if we are what? To see if we are in the faith. Now, in our fellowship, community is a weighty matter. It's a matter of great gravity. I'm repeating myself, but it's a matter of circumspection, examination. We go to one another if we have aught against each other. We appeal if one among us is failing. Amen? Communion is this time of examination for us. It's like what the Jews must have gone through at the time of Yom Kippur. Amen? And we we come and we say, okay, Lord, I'm in the faith. But we would like to think of faith as this, this spark of positivity that just alights on me and gives me that extra spring in my Christian walk. but that's not faith. Amen. Faith is hearing the Word of God and believing it more than yourself. That's faith. You're inundated with the word of self. You're inundated with the gospel of self. from first narcissist three and one. You're inundated with the lies about self. You're inundated, with the word of self. And you live by that word. Self is your God. And then all of a sudden you encounter the voice of your father. The voice of God. And it runs counter to everything you've taught yourself. Everything you think about yourself. Everything you'd like to imagine yourself to be. But there's this ho- also this hope in it. It's never just this condemnation. There's this hope in it that God could make you something different. And when you respond to the word of God, the word that is called quick and powerful and sharp to discern thoughts and intents and motives, when you respond to that with eager, active confidence that this will change me, that's faith. And so when he says examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith, we cannot know whether we're in the faith until we examine our response to the word. Faith is never a standalone thing. Faith is a responsive, reflexive thing. Faith is the human answer to an encounter with God's word that is sharp, discerning, delivering, directional. So when we say examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith, we got to say, God, how do I hear your word? What is my attitude? What does your word, how does your word affect me? I think that might be the simplest way to start the examination. How does your word affect me? Well, we've already given enough ground to say, what if your word reveals something in me that is outside my empirical control or my empirical analysis? Well, do I believe that just because I can't see it, smell it, taste it, touch it, it's not there? Colossians 2.5, Paul Even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Paul is rejoicing to see what? The stability of their faith. If we can have stable faith, then that means we can have unstable faith. But he's rejoicing, he's saying, I'm very happy that there is some stability in your faith. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Almost doesn't even feel like it fits when he adds that tag on. But Paul is rejoicing that there is something stable about their faith. This is what we need to know before we take communion. That our faith has not been destabilized. The only way for our faith to be destabilized is for God to become a liar or for us to start to believe ourselves with the same weight we once attributed to Christ. Those are the two ways. That's it. Either you have made an empirical discovery that the rest of us are excluded from, that God is a liar, that he makes promises he doesn't keep, that he offers grace that he doesn't give. Either you've made that discovery, or... You have destabilized your faith in Christ by starting to lean on your own understanding and in all your ways deny him so that your path becomes constantly crooked. In Ephesians 3, he says that he's praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Amen. Christ doesn't live here. This isn't his house. And his house ain't filled with glory except if I am maintaining the right attitude and response toward his word. Does his word define my reality? Or does my reality attempt to define his word? I've given this example, but I've got to give it again because I haven't thought of a better one. If Brother Josiah was sitting there playing his guitar one afternoon and his little girl Ruthie came up and said, Daddy, when did you learn to play the violin? Josiah would say, Sweetheart, this is a guitar. In fact, somebody in gray hair and stranger may walk up to you and say, Oh, I love the violin while you're playing the guitar. And you'd say, yes, sir, I do too. This is a guitar. Right? And, and if you were sitting there playing one day, twinkle, twinkle, little star, and not that you play that all the time, but all of a sudden the ceiling ripped off and the clouds parted and an angel stood before you in gilded light and said to you, how long have you been playing that violin? You'd look at it and say, my, in all my life I thought it was a guitar. (laughs) What am I showing? That an encounter with God should define your reality. That an encounter with an authority figure that is transcendent, I mean the Spirit of God, should redefine reality. But we want to put God under our microscope. We want to put his word under our microscope. And we're not living by stable faith. I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints all the good he's given you. My paraphrase. What's going to keep you from comprehending with all the saints all the good that God's given you? the breadth and width and height and depth. Don't you want to take this cup, having comprehended together with all the saints all the good God's given you? But you can't comprehend that if your faith isn't firm. You can't comprehend that because He's not living in your heart unless you can answer the question, how do I respond to the Word of God? Does it produce a response, an immediate engagement of faith that totally rearranges my reality. I once sat across the table from a man who had heard the truth and acknowledged it was true, but then didn't like the steps that it was gonna entail. And with some cocky pride, he said, if this is God's will, let an angel speak to me. Angels aren't scared of me. It wasn't given to angels to preach the gospel because that would require a whole lot less faith. It was given to men to preach the gospel so that you could have to swallow your pride, your unbelief, your skepticism and say, behind the imperfection and aside from the frailty of flesh, I heard God speak to me. How can they hear without a preacher? That's when he said faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That preacher's not perfect. Your father or mother's not perfect. Your spouse is not perfect. But can you hear God from his people? You see, if you heard that angel in that manner, it would define your, it would redefine your reality. And you'd go through the whole world telling people, guys, we've named this wrong. This is actually a violin. But I'll tell you what it wouldn't require is faith. It wouldn't require a shred of faith on his part. But when you hear the God, word of God from somebody who's not that angel, and yet deep calls unto deep at the sound of his voice, and his sheep hear his voice and a voice of a stranger they won't follow, and something tells you, God is speaking to me. If you believe that, it requires faith. And it's not mushy faith and it's not wishy-washy faith, and it's not faith on Sunday and doubt on, on Monday. It's firm faith. God wants to give us firm faith. And what he wants to know when we come to the altar to take communion is, I have no other God, I have no other Lord. I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Speak the word and my reality will rearrange. Speak the word and my servant will be healed. Speak the word and my blind scales will fall from my eyes. Just speak the word, God. And our claim that he is our Lord is revealed in our response, our attitude toward his word. In both James and Peter, we're told that the devil is out to get us. Peter says that he's prowling around Like a roaring lion, I'm glad he's roaring. (laughs) I'm glad his roars represent invitations to pride and ambition. Because at least we know we can avoid that. But he's prowling around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he says, just cross your fingers and hope it ain't you. Because if it is, what can you do? That's not even the New Living Translation. What does he say? He says, resist him. But then he tells us how. Firm in your faith. You have no power against the devil through your will or through the muscles of your plan or Self made religion. You can only repel Satan through your response to the Word of God. You can resist him firm in your faith. Do we believe the Word of God? Do we hear God utter a promise over us? And the flesh. Immediately opens its mouth and says, Well, blah, 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 blah. And if so, do we follow it up with, Yet, nevertheless, because you said it, Amen. I'm going to do it. You know, I was telling my wife, I said, You know, honey, rather than buy trees and plant them around the house, we can. We can just take a shovel and go get a a young tree sprout and transplant them up by the house because they're all over the place. Well, sure enough, I started looking at them. And they're everywhere. How many of you love to drive through Texas and see those giant oaks just holding up the atmosphere? I love it. The Bible evokes oaks in the early books more than almost anything else. Every time God speaks to Abraham or meets with Jacob, they define the place by saying it was near this oak tree. I think the holy people like to hang out around oak trees. I like oak trees too. Amen. They, they, he, calls, he says that his people will be called oaks of, oaks of righteousness. I like this. See, I'm giving you a good reason why to keep liking oak trees. And in case you're wondering, those aren't cedars of Lebanon. You don't have to like them. Amen. But I said, well, let's just take an oak sprout and, uh, and uh, use that. Well, I had a dream. This is weird. I had a dream, two, two dreams, same while we were in Israel. The dream came to me two, two, two times. And the dream had one simple message, and I wrote it down, and it was a grown weed can dominate a tree sprout. When we came home and I started looking for these trees, I saw them, but they were almost indistinguishable among the weeds. That great big oak tree, when it starts, it's just a foot tall. It may be lost in the blades of grass. Or among thorns. But God has put something inside that oak sprout that is fundamentally different from that thorny nightshade weed that sits beside it. But it's possible for that oak tree, which God envisions to be something that fills this room, it's possible for that oak tree to be dominated and ruined and its future lost as it gets wrapped around these weeds that are really one day going to look like puny little specks at the oak's feet. Jesus said the kingdom of God shall be compared to a seed that a man plants, and it becomes a great tree. When God puts truth in your heart, it's an oak sprout. But it's hidden among all your ideas, distractions, fears, amen, amen. A tough bramble can choke out a sapling tree. Amen. You might have, you might have faith like a mustard seed, but you got pride like a full-grown bramble. And that bramble, God wants that bramble one day to look as skinny and scrawny and emaciated and wasted and ugly as it really is. But right now, it's strong enough to wrap around your tree and ruin it. We're clearing a space for my grandparents to bring them down and take care of them, and the oaks that were revealed once Daniel was cleaning out all the garbage is just phenomenal. It's beautiful. I like to just go over there and stand there. There's this one oak tree, and uh, it's one of the most unusual shaped trees I've ever seen. And if somebody comes to it now and looks at this tree, I mean, its branches go like this. It is strange. And you say, wow, I, I love it. How did it get that shape? we got to keep that one. They didn't see the bulldozer that came and very, with great dexterity, honestly, for a bulldozer, ripped and twisted this gnarly, rotten cedar tree away from that oak. Amen. Some people are like that. Some people have lived with gnarly lies very close to their trunk. And God wants to rip it away and reveal what you were meant to be. And for all the twists and turns that it's made you go through, people are gonna say it's more beautiful. I look at that tree and I say, at least it didn't give up. At least it just kept on. It didn't know that God was going to send somebody one day to rip away that lie. I'm so glad that that tree doesn't have doesn't have to come to a place of trust. It can just sit there and let God do the work. But God can't rip your lie away without you letting Him. Amen. Some of us have love like a kingdom seed, but we've got fear like a rooted weed but that fear it doesn't have the promise in it that the truth has that god has planted in your heart amen and if you can get past the tangle of its young overcoming stage there's something so much greater that god has put inside of his people and he envisions that we become oaks of righteousness I hope you can see that your faith looks as small as your bramble. But I hope you can hear that brambles don't turn into oak trees. Amen? But that faith that is still alive, though twisted and choked and denied the nutrients it deserves, that faith has a promised DNA inside of it that wants to reach out and become an expression of God's glory on the earth. And God wants you before communion to put your hands on that briar no matter how it tears at your flesh and pull it away from your oak sprout. Because he doesn't want you to be a twisted oak tree that's the same size as the weeds around it. He wants you to grow taller and stronger and be a different appearance by this time next year. Thank you, Jesus. And I think that somebody, and more than one, feel a little zephyr of hope. And more than hope, they feel an impetus of faith today. I don't have to define my own reality. I don't have to live with these lies that are choking out God's purpose and promise in my life. God can change my outlook. You see, fear is just faith in the enemy. It's just faith in the voice of the devil. That's all it is. It comes by hearing too. Amen. Ambition is just faith in in the vision of what you can be without God. But faith, faith is that victory that overcomes the world. It ignites when you heard the one whom you know you can trust as father. I'd stand on my head if I thought it would give you the faith to quit coexisting with your own self-deception. Amen. I'd do anything. But that's the dangerous thing about trust. A bulldozer can rip away the tangle from the oak. Chainsaws can cut down briars and poison can kill poison ivy, but only you can decide that you've been choked and stunted and tangled and confused and frustrated long enough that you're withdrawing your faith from yourself once and for all and that you're going to trust Jesus because you know he loves you and because you have no other alternative amen thank you jesus if it's a necessity for you you're going to do it if you can peer through some magic glass and see all the decisions you make in the future and see all the consequences that they're going to produce and know that by your own insight and with your own supervision you can trust yourself by all means do it and let the rest of the world know But where you see heartache and brokenness and surprises and disappointments, you should say, God save me from that path, that path that I have walked myself. I have no choice. I have to trust. Who am I going to trust? That's an easy choice. You don't get to choose whether you'll trust. You just get to choose who you'll trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. So God, help us. Help us, help us, help us to come to a new level of trust. And help us to know that the only reason our faith would become mushy is if if the Lord is not true or if I attribute to myself the same weight his word deserves.